That psalm is Psalm 63, and that is written by a man named David who intimately knew the power and the presence of God in his life. That's why we gather today, because I want you to know who God is. I want you to know the power of God on behalf of you and the presence of God in your life. And we do that by opening up his word every single week to say, God, show us who you are. If we haven't met yet, my name is Thomas, and it's a joy to be in this room with you and continue in our series of Exodus. Are you excited for Exodus chapter 12? Yes! If you're new, you're like, man, this is great. People are excited about their Bibles. I'm excited. Okay, so here's the deal. Every week, we open up the scriptures and say, God, who are you? That we would have a bigger picture of who you are. Because if you're like me, I have troubling weeks. I have hard things that come my way. I have confusion. I need wisdom. I lack understanding. There's grief and sorrows. There's fear in my life. And I want to know, God, are you big enough to handle my life? And, And are you present enough that I can depend on you? And so this season here at Calvary, we've been going through the Old Testament historic account of how God brought his people out of a place of bondage, and he brings them to a place of promise, that God is both powerful enough to bring his people out of bondage, and he's present and faithful enough to bring them to a place that's life-giving, a place of promise that he had told the forefathers beforehand that he would do. And so we're in this epic narrative in Exodus, seeing the grandeur of God, how big and awesome and other than us he is. And yet he doesn't remain aloof or far. He is personally present and active within his people's lives. And we see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if if that's who God is in Exodus, that's the same God we pray to today. If that was the God on the move who heard and saw and knew their sufferings and brought freedom, that's the same God that hears and knows and sees ours and can do the same. That's why we're in the Old Testament. We, we want to be whole Bible Christians. We want to know the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The whole testament of who God is and his works with his people. In Matthew 13, the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus says this, this is Matthew 13, verse 52. The scribes of the kingdom, the teachers of the kingdom, bring forth its old and its new treasures. That the, the scribes, the teachers of the kingdom, bring forth old treasures as well as new treasures. That the scribes of the kingdom aren't just concerned with the New Testament and the treasures they find there and say, ah, oh, who cares about the old? Let's ignore them. Let's pay attention to the, what we have new. No, the teachers and the scribes of the kingdom want to integrate the old treasures and the new treasures that we together as a community would treasure God. Even Jesus who came did not simply reject the Old Testament and say, okay, now I'm going to give you a new word, a fresh word. No, he reveals what God was doing throughout the Old Testament. He reveals who he is as the fulfillment of everything spoken in the Old Testament. So here's my desire to do today, is that we would present both old and new treasures so that you would know God more fully, so that you would trust him more completely, no matter what your circumstances are. And so we're going to open up Exodus. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up to 11, chapter 11, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you, or there's a Bible that you can access on this thing called the World Wide Web. That's what the WWW stands for. 
you didn't know that. Some people in the room are like, oh, man, that makes sense. WWW. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now, it's important that we spend a little bit of time catching up. That in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the story of God's deliverance. That he has called a man named Moses to be his chosen instrument. That through Moses, he would bring the Hebrew people that have been enslaved in Egypt for more than 400 years. I mean, abusive slavery. That this Pharaoh, his father and grandfather, have murdered the Hebrew children. Have burdened them and built their kingdom on the backs of these Hebrew people. And that God has called Moses to lead these people out of this place of bondage to a place of freedom. And God said to Moses that Pharaoh has a hard heart that is adamantly against God, that will not soften, that will not relent. But God will use his own hard heart, Pharaoh's hard heart, against himself. He will turn evil and wickedness back on itself, and that will bring freedom. And so there have been a display, as we looked at last week, of nine miracles, displays of God's sovereign power over Egypt so that Pharaoh would know who is the Lord, the God of the earth. When Moses came to Pharaoh, this is chapter five, Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't know your God, never heard of him. Why should I listen to him? And these plagues are done, these miracles and wonders are done to display who is God, awesome in power and strength and present in life. And so nine plagues have come, and they kind of grow in intensity. And yet Pharaoh's hard heart stays hard. It says that his heart was hard, that Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. In fact, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's this play in relationship in which Pharaoh's heart is hardened and hardened and hardened, and this hardness will bring deliverance. Here in chapter 11, verse 1, it says that they're going to be driven out. It's not as though Pharaoh's heart will suddenly become soft, and in his kindness and in his softness will liberate people. No, in his hardness and his anger and pride, he will accomplish what God wants him to accomplish. He will drive out his people from bondage and slavery. And so now we come to this 10th plague. This 10th plague that perhaps you're familiar with, this is the 10th plague of the death of the firstborn that happens in Egypt. And so this is gonna set up a whole calendar, a series of feasts, an identity for the Hebrew people. From this moment in Exodus, a nation is formed. We've said this before, that the Hebrew people, Israel, came into Egypt as a family. It will depart as a nation. And with a national identity, with a, with a calendar, an orientation towards time, it will have feasts and festivals. It will have its own law here shortly when we get to Sinai. They will be formed from a family into a nation. And one of the most integral pieces of this nation will be this remembrance of Passover, of the Feast of Unleavened Breads, which is established here in chapter 12 on the 10th plague. Let's dive in. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year for you. That you're going to have a calendar and it's going to begin on this month. This month is actually the month of Nisan as we know it today. 
Nisan will start your calendar of feasts. This first month will happen in the spring. When you're, th- when you're thinking and celebrating the newness of life, the potential of a new crop, what the future holds, what can come this year, you will start with this month of Nisan. You will order your whole calendar as a nation from this month that you're going to experience that starts with Passover. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So the 10th of Nisan, kind of like the 4th of July, the 10th day of this month, Nisan, you're going to tell the fathers, the household leads, to go out and amongst the sheep or the goats, as we'll see, they are to select a lamb. The lamb will become pivotal, paramount to this story of both Exodus and the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. They are to select this lamb. And if the household is too small for a lamb, a whole lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for them. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Take it from the sheep or from the goats. This is so important that God says, okay, the lamb that you're going to need for this Passover, the 10th plague, the establishment as a nation, this feast, is for you to go to either the sheep or the goats and, and find very specifically a male, one year old, without any blemish. I mean, there's no error in this lamb. It doesn't have a broken leg. It's not like a really, really dumb lamb, okay? It, it doesn't have a funny-looking coat. You don't get to go to the back of the line and be like, nobody wanted this lamb anyway. Let's just get rid of this one. No, you have to go to the, the front of the line, to the best, to the spotless, and you select that lamb, perhaps probably your best in all of your flocks. And if it's too much for just your household, then you would invite your neighbor's household together because it's going to be important that you would actually use the whole lamb, that you don't get to parcel this lamb. And so you go out looking for the best lamb amongst your flocks according to the commands of God, and this will be the Passover lamb. All right, verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, the evening hours. And so you go and you select your lamb on the 10th of Nisan, the 10th day. And then you're going to hold this lamb in your house until the 14th of Nisan. Now, I'm not a math major, but how many days is that? Four. That's right, four days from the 10th to the 14th. Now, if this lamb were to come into my house, my children would have already named it. They would have already been like bringing it in their bedroom. It would have been part of the family. We probably would have named it Lamb Chops. You know, I don't know, or probably like Betsy or something like that. But for four days, this lamb is part of your family. You're loving this lamb. You're caring for this lamb. And you're also inspecting this lamb to make sure that it is perfect without blemish spot. And so for four days, they have this lamb in their house. And on the 14th, four days later, at twilight, the community, and this is not an individual act, it is that the family members in a household or neighbors are gathering, the community of God's people, at the same time, will slaughter their lambs. And what we'll see is that they will actually take some of the blood from the lamb, and this will be a sign 
that we used in this Passover. Now, here's just a little disclaimer. As suburbanites, we look at this story and we're going, man, this is so foreign. Do you know why it's foreign? Because it's actually foreign. It's in a different land, actually. It happened in a different land at a different time. Man, who would have thought? Who would have thought? But we can't use our 21st century suburban lenses to judge people and to judge God's story. It'd be so arrogant. And so we must allow the story to speak for itself with their context and their, their society and what they're used to. In fact, it's helpful to even know that there are those today that are helped by stories like this because of their social contexts that are not our unique social context. When we hear about putting lambs to death or blood or something like that, they're like, oh man, why so much violence? It's just, ugh, it's terrible. But it's actually helpful for some. I was talking to the preaching professor down at Denver Seminary, and he was recounting a pastor who had graduated from seminary, and he was teaching in one of the suburban churches, and he loved the New Testament. All he would teach out was the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles, because they're so oriented towards getting principles. Like you get principles for life and you apply these principles to your life and good suburbanites like principles of improvement. It's like their fitness plans. And then he got called by God to go to the inner city. And he take the same messages of principles to improve your life and principles to change your life. And the folks in the inner city were listening to him and go, man, I don't relate to anything you're saying. It don't make sense at all. And so he found himself turning in his Bible to the Old Testament to stories like Exodus. And there he began to preach Christ from the Old Testament, who God was from the Old Testament. And at last their eyes were open, he said. They said, now we understand, because that's the world we live in. We live in a world that is marked by violence and chaos and bloodshed. And now it makes sense of who God is and how he is redeeming and how he is merciful and how he is kind and how he is present with us. And so perhaps we just need to just note that we come to this text with a suburban lens and we want to allow it to speak on its own that we might learn from it, okay? So they put these lambs after 14 days to death the same time at twilight. Verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat it. They're supposed to take the blood that is spilt from this lamb and mark the doorframe of their house. There's no altars in which they worship in Egypt. And so this is almost like the altar of their worship is their home. And they take this blood. And the blood's going to be so important to the story. The lamb and the blood of the lamb to mark their household. Either their family or their family and neighbors are in this house. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, Blood unleavened bread is bread without yeast. It doesn't rise. Their departure is going to be so quickly, there's, they're so quick, there's no time to let bread rise and then bake it. It's going to be flat, like a cracker. And bitter herbs they shall eat. This bitterness on the herbs, the bitterness is, is, is a symbol of the bitterness of their slavery attached to the lamb, which is so sweet. And they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So they're going to talk about how to eat this lamb. Now here is what the meal is. Now how you're going to eat it. You have to eat the whole meal. You have to have a, a lamb that's without spot. It has to be perfect. And then you can't break any of its bone. You can't 
systematically take apart the lamb and, and cut it up and chop it up and put it into a stew. The lamb must be a whole and perfect, unbroken, fully consumed sacrifice unto the Lord. The whole lamb matters. So talking about this is what you need, this is how we are to eat it, and then the posture in which you eat it. This is very prescriptive for God's people. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So here's, here's the directions. We're going to have this amazing meal, and you're going to want to eat it. But instead of reclining at the table, instead of just enjoying it and relaxing like you would, would do normal feasts, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get your jacket, your, your, your tunic, you're going to get your belt, you're going to get your sandals on your feet and your staff, maybe some, a backpack with your pots and pans, and you're going to be ready to eat the meal in haste, quickly. Now, you think about that compared to how I eat my favorite meal of the year, which is Thanksgiving, in case you wondered. Now, if you're wondering why Thanksgiving is the greatest meal of the year, let me tell you real quick. Okay, side note. This is just for your own edification. Thanksgiving is the greatest holiday, because we remember, but it's because there's family, friends, food, football, and fun. With, that's pretty good, huh? With no expectations of having to buy you a present, or you to buy me a present. We're just enjoying each other. How great is that? But at, at Thanksgiving, you know, I usually show up in my sweatpants and like a workout shirt, so there's some flexibility in what I'm about to do, because I'm gonna eat and then lay down for hours and then eat. But unlike that, here at the Passover, here's the prescription, is you're to get dressed, ready to go. Belt, staff, sandals, and you're gonna eat it in haste. Why? This is the Lord's Passover. This is the final plague, and then, and then, we will see Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, so angry that he will cast you out. He'll cast you out quickly from his country. He will cast you out and you will leave in a hurry and you need to be ready to leave. And so there is the, the lamb, how you already eat the lamb, the posture of eating the lamb. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The reason any of this exists is this. Is that God is bringing his judgment on the little g gods of Egypt. That the ultimate judge of the universe is in one night going to put his judgments throughout the land of Egypt. What are God's judgments? God's judgments are exactly what we would want. They're his right and fitting responses to sin and wickedness. And so here is Egypt having murdered, having oppressed, and finally what we have longed for is judgments, right and fitting responses to hold people accountable for what they've done for 400 years. God says, I will, I will bring this final plague as my right and fitting response on the little g-gods who think they're gods in Egypt. That's what's going to happen. And the firstborn amongst men and women, amongst the cattle, livestock, will experience this judgment. And even Israel will be visited by this judgment, but they are to preserve under this, sta under this status. Verse 13, the blood from the lamb 
shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will fall, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That, that the destroyer, this judgment is going to come on the land of Egypt, and it's going to go into the place called Goshen. And we've seen that Goshen is where the Hebrew people live. And throughout the plagues, there were times in which God said to make a distinction, that Israel would know, that the Egyptians would know, that the Hebrew people are my people. Only this plague will fall on Egypt. And it will not come into Goshen. Look, the hail, for example, that destroyed all of the livestock and all of the produce didn't affect the land of Goshen. And perhaps being a Hebrew, you can start saying, man, God must really love us. We might be better. We're so much better than the Egyptians. And so God's going to bring his judgment on the Egyptians, but we're fine. You know why we're fine? Because we are his people. We are his children. And so no judgments would ever come on us for maybe the sins or the things that we've done. But that's not true. God says, I'm going to bring my judgments on the whole land of, of Egypt. And that will include Goshen, where my people reside as well. But as I come into Goshen, to where you have houses and you have families, I will look for the sign, which is the blood of this slain, perfect, spotless lamb. And when I see this sign of blood, which throughout the scripture is talking about the purification of things, to make things sacred, when I see the blood on the altar of your doorframe, I will pass over your house, and so my judgments will not fall on your home and move on to the next. But every home in Egypt will be visited by my judgments. And my judgment goes to every home, every home. But only those who are marked with the blood of the lamb will I pass over, he says. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So here's this feast, the first month of the year, as the year begins in spring, that you are to remember the mighty work of God bringing you out of bondage into a place of freedom a place of peace and prosperity. This is the hope that God gives them, that this is not the end. This night will not be the last night. In fact, there are gonna be so many more nights. You're gonna host this feast for generations. You're gonna do these things with these same elements for generations. On the 10th of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan, going to the 21st day of Nisan. And verses 15 through 20 talk about the, remainder, the remaining week after this Passover meal, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The bread speaking of there's no leaven in Egypt, they're, they're quick to leave, and the purifications of the house to talk about what we're, what we're supposed to do with leaven and how we're supposed to remove leaven from our houses. And we'll pick that up later in Exodus. We'll come back to it. But let's continue on with our Passover story of the Passover lamb. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is a plant, and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintels and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintels, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
There it is. The, you're only saved, not because your ethnicity, not because of the family you belong to, not because of even your, your necessary like, identity of, of being a Hebrew. You're only safe within the house, marked with the blood of this Passover perfect lamb. Verse 24, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. You're gonna, there's going to be a day, this is the hope, that you're actually going to make it out of Egypt. And you're going to get to the land that's called promised that I have in store for you. And you're going to remember this Passover. Every single year you're going to remember this feast. So that you would remember that God is in, in his strength and in his presence brought you out of bondage to this place. Now when you're having this meal, it's, it's a little unusual. And how you're eating this meal is a bit unusual. Your children might ask. Dad, why, what makes night, tonight so different than all other nights? I mean, what, why do we eat the Passover like this? Why do we eat the lamb roasted like this with bitter herbs and unleavened bread? And when your children ask, it's because they don't know. And it's your, ja your job as, as a dad and as a mom, as a grandma and a grandpa, to tell your children and your grandchildren, let me remind you how awesome God is. Let me remind you of things that we're so quick to forget, of God's power and presence in our life. And this meal is a, is a remembrance of how God powerfully brought us out of slavery in Egypt to this place we call home. A place is free. And to tell your children who is the Lord, to remind them of his awesome deeds, that as your trust has grown in God, so too their trust will grow in God. And we remind our children, we remind one another, we gather in this room to remind ourselves. Why? Because the Christian practice is the practice of remembering. We have the habit of forgetting. We forget all the time. Something happens in our life, we think, man, where's God? What happened? Is he any good? Does he hear my prayers? We need to constantly gather and remind ourselves, remember who is the Lord. What has he done? What has he promised? Where is he present in your life? It is a call of remembrance. And as the Hebrew people remember this, they remembered it every single year in the very first month of their calendar. Before the year began, before their New Year's resolutions were established, they remembered who God was. Awesome in power. Awesome in presence. And so verse 29, the 10th plague comes on Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. 
Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Bless me also. I mean, there is a line that is like, I mean, the worst headline to be printed in a morning's paper. There was not a household in Egypt where someone or something was dead. God's judgment had come through Egypt. And his judgment had come both to the Egyptians and to his own people in Goshen. And to put it rather crude, every house either had a dead son or there was a dead lamb. That's it. And every Hebrew firstborn son knew that he was alive because that lamb was slain. He knew there was a life because there was a substitution put in place. It wasn't his own idea. He wasn't deserving of it. He wasn't worthy of it. He didn't invent this and ask God to accomplish it. No, this was, this was instituted by God's own grace. He made a gracious provision for all those who would put their faith in him their whole household would be saved. And you think about this for a minute, like, they've been in Egypt for 400 years. And they probably thought about, how are we going to get out of here? What might or strength can we conjure up? What skills can we use to break these chains of bondage in our life? And then here comes Moses, and he says, okay, God gave me the plan. This is how it's going to go down. We're going we're gonna to use a lamb. And then you're going to get all dressed up for a dinner with your shoes and jacket and belt on, with your staff in hand, and we're gonna eat it really quickly. And you're going, that sounds stupid. <laughs> like, a lamb? That's, that's the weakest animal. And then I'm, I'm supposed to just trust, I mean, imagine, here's Israel standing in their house that night with their staff, their belt on, with their shoes on. We're gonna leave in the morning. And Egyptians walking around going, Look how foolish these people are. They painted their houses with the blood of a lamb. And they're inside, and they're not even reclining at the table. They're standing fully dressed with staff and sandals, ready to eat, looking like a bunch of fools. This is it? This is God's plan? It doesn't make any sense. It's not how I would do it. Yeah, that's probably the point. That's probably the point is that we wouldn't trust in our own understanding, but we would learn to trust in the power of God. That's what we do. We trust in the power of God. We say, God, if this is your ways, then, then I want to trust in your ways. And there's this line that, that just continues to be in my mind this entire week. Well, there was not a home in Egypt that had not experienced death. And some would say, yeah, finally judgment came on those people. Now they're feeling what generations have felt under their oppression hand, oppressive hand, killing their sons. Now they feel it. But God's people are never to rejoice in another person's suffering. Even your enemies. The rabbis who still host Passover meals will tell the people who are partaking in the meal that their joy of freedom is also clothed with grief. That it's bittersweet. That there's a sweetness of we're free. 
God rescued us. And then there's grief that your freedom came through suffering of others. Here's Proverbs 20, 24. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's not the heart of God's people. And so there's joy that freedom is, is now on its eve. But it's colored in with grief. That fellow humans have, have suffered in my, in my freedom. And so here's this Passover. So Passover happens in the first month of the calendar year. And every year they remember this. Getting a lamb according to its, its principles. Eating it in this posture to remember who God is. That is the very first Passover. And they had the hope of remembering it all the way to the promised land and for generations telling their children of who God is as awesome in rescue, present in power. And they do this. They, they have Passover at Sinai in the wilderness. And as they come into the promised land, Joshua 5, they have the very first Passover in the promised land. And from the point of leaving Egypt to the promised land, 40 years, they've been eating God's provision of manna. Some quail thrown in, but mostly manna for 40 years. They host the Passover in the promised land, the very first one. You know what happens? The manna ceases, and they begin to eat the fruit of the land. They begin to see the promise of what God has brought them to, and they're eating and enjoying the fruit of what God has promised to the people. It's this awesome picture. And Israel goes on and off about remembering the Passover throughout their history. By the time of Jesus, we see old treasures, and now we're going to look at new treasures. The time of Jesus, they, they were fundamentally remembering the Passover every single year. And that final week of Jesus' life, do you know that it's Passover week? It's Passover week. And Jesus is said, this is John chapter 1, to be the Lamb of God. This is John chapter 1. The next day when he, this is, uh, um, John saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a better lamb than the Passover lamb because the Passover lamb covered people's sins. This lamb, Jesus Christ, removes sin, takes it away. As far as the east is from the west, he'll remove it. And so here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the final week, that, that Palm Sunday, he comes in on the 10th of Nisan. When, when Israel is selecting their lambs and bringing them into Jerusalem, God has selected his. As the Father has selected their lambs for their families without spot or blemish, God has selected his perfect lamb for the family that he was making. It was his own son, Jesus Christ. And on Palm Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem for this final Passover week. Here's Matthew 26. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover, this meal, that generations are to remember of God's faithful rescue? Where do you want us to have this meal? And Jesus gives them instructions of an upper room and the provisions that have been made to share this meal. And then Jesus and the disciples gather in the upper room and they share this Passover meal. And the unleavened bread is there and the cups of wine, remembrance of the blood of the lamb are there. And there's no mention of lamb at the table. It's interesting because Jesus was the lamb at the table. 
And so at the end of Matthew 26, this is the final meal. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my body of the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He takes two Passover elements that Israel has been using through the generations to point of God's faithfulness and how they preserved and passed over sins and they were saved. Jesus says, that bread, are you remembering? is a signpost to me. This bread is, is my body. And then in this cup of judgment and salvation that you drink of every single year to remember the blood of the lamb, the saving grace of God's provision on your life in Egypt, that this cup is about me and the blood that I will spill on the cross. And, and you will now be called to eat and drink of this in remembrance of me. And as Israel every single year remembers the Passover, we as the people remember the Lord and his Passover lamb every time we gather at the Lord's table. That's what's going on at the Lord's table. When we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we are remembering Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who has taken away our sins. And it's all established in the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And on the cross, Jesus' final words were this, it is finished. It is finished. What's finished? All the sacrificial systems of having to cover sin is over because I have made the final sacrifice with myself to take away all sins for whoever would trust in the gracious provision of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. It is finished. And do you know when Jesus died? At twilight. When they slaughtered the Passover lambs, there Jesus died on the cross, fulfilling the Passover. For all who would believe now in Jesus Christ, their life is marked by the sacrificial death of Jesus. And when God sees your life marked by Christ, he knows that all your sins are forgiven. When he sees your life marked by Christ, he knows you belong to him. You're in his family. And he knows your sins are forgiven. And like Exodus, we all are in the same boat. We all need rescue from God's right and fitting judgments on our own life. We all do. This is Romans 5. Romans 5 points this out so clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. I mean, here's a gracious provision. He made a way. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation is that of being propitious. That if you would do something, the gods would be propitious and turn away from you. Turn wrath away from you. And that turning away from us happens through the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To be received, and how do we get this? It's received by faith. God's gracious provision received by faith. And we would say, we're going to mark our doors. I know people think this is foolish. We're going to mark our doors, our lives with Christ. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
And now he deals with sin completely in his son, Jesus Christ. Not a household in Egypt didn't have somebody or something that was dead. And we think, what kind of God is this? And here we see the father knowing the pain of the death of his own son for you and for me. And if God would give you his most precious son, how will he not also give you all things? If he has given us Christ, oh man, rejoice. Rejoice. We have been found in him. It was the ransom of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sins. And all those who would believe in Jesus Christ, profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, would be saved. Would be saved, be brought into the family of God, which is an eternal family of life, beginning now and lasting forever. All those who are marked by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A free gift received by faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Passover. Lord, I thank you that you would make a provision for us to live through your right and fitting judgment. Lord, you are so kind. And so, Lord, we, we trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we profess as a community of people, we profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, that no one in this room will be saved apart from him. Lord, we profess that he is our King, that we worship him, we don't trust in our own works. We don't trust in our own skills. We trust in him. And so, Lord, would you hear our praises? Would you hear our prayers? And that would you know that we love your son? We thank you for the gift of your son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we, we give you praise today. Amen.